0: This is the Cannacurio podcast by Cannabis Media, your source for cannabis and hemp license updates directly from the data vault. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Media newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay informed of future episodes and data releases.
1: Welcome to the Cannacurio podcast powered by Cannabis Media. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, we've got a really great show ahead with some very interesting data hi- highlights. Uh, today, we'll be joined by Graham McConnell, the co-founder of nthround. EnthRound is a comprehensive equity management platform for companies of all stages and sizes. Uh, they are also a Cannabis Media subscriber. Hooray! Uh, but as always, let's check in with Ed to see what he's learned this week uh, for us on the data front. Thanks, Amanda.
2: So we brought in some new data last week, uh, a lot of updates actually from Oregon, where we brought in 57 licenses, and Canada, that have, uh, where they've issued 20 more licensed producers um, in, in terms of their marketplace. And then we just recently wrote up a article on a recent trademark case with Edible Arrangements, where they complained that somebody is using a trademark similar to one that they own. And I dug down into the licenses and I thought it was interesting to find that one of the reasons why they might be so interested in this is because they are actually growing um, hemp and uh, manufacturing it in Connecticut. Plus, no they way. have yeah. Plus, they have about a dozen or so licenses in the South where uh, their stores can use CBD in their offerings. So, I, I think they've got a very interesting angle in terms of uh, why they're so interested in defending their uh, their trademarks.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if we're going to start seeing uh, more uh, uh, lawsuits like that um, moving forward within the hemp space specifically. It's a
2: good question. I I know that with Edible Arrangements,
1: they're pretty well
2: known for defending their intellectual property uh, and and have done that for a long time. So they they make that clear in a lot of the news coverage. But this one was just sort of interesting to see having worked on the Connecticut licenses myself to realize (laughs) under a different brand, you know, they are growing and um, manufacturing products. So, you know, it'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on.
1: Very interesting. Um, and I see a lot of the data highlights are for uh, focus on cannabis. Um, we've had a lot of hemp come in over the last few weeks. Are we seeing uh, hemp license update slow down? And- uh, yeah, pretty much. A lot of
2: the hemp licenses, as we've talked about in the past, tend to focus on the, um, the grow season. So a lot of them get issued in March, and maybe April or before that, because people want to have licenses so they can put seeds in the ground. And then after that, a lot of the states are done. I mean, they run it through the Department of Agriculture, licenses are issued, and then we wait until the end of the year when they all expire. A few states have ongoing licensure where you can sign up anytime, but uh, a lot of the growers now are are more in like a a harvest uh, situation. So a lot of new licenses are probably not going to be issued at this point. So we expect to see some of them um, ending in, you know, end of November, end of December.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, sounds good to me. Thanks so much for the update, Ed. Uh, I have with us Graham from Nth Round. Graham, welcome to the show.
0: Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me
1: yeah thank you for uh, joining us we're so excited to to have you on here it's been uh, a few weeks in the making um so tell us a little about ba- a little bit about yourself uh graham uh you and the unthrown team are providing a pretty interesting solution uh to or provide yeah providing a, a very interesting solution to um a sector within the cannabis industry and beyond um what kind of sparked this idea
0: yeah um so i grew up in the philadelphia area uh and after college i came back home and worked at a startup uh, in a town called Radnor outside of Philadelphia. Um, I got stock options in that company and was really excited to be a part owner in that in that enterprise um only to 2 years later find out that I really didn't know what those options were worth and um you know was actually ended up kind of giving them up because I didn't realize the rules around executing those options. So Yeah. I went from there to a, a public equities investment manager and kind of got to see that the other the opposite end of things were there's so much infrastructure around public companies. Uh, the employees of those companies get the benefit of as soon as their, their options vest or their equity vests, they can turn around and sell it on the open market. So um, we just started playing around with ideas of how we could make that better in the, in the private world.
1: Wow, that's incredible, um, and uh, also, you know, really important solution. Um, you know, I come from a recruitment background myself, and you know, the education, you know, kind of around and options and what that actually means to employees is not something that's uh, readily uh, available, uh, especially within a startup environment. Um, and unless you have the resources to to do that research on your on your own or really take the time to understand it, um, it can be um, a little com- uh, a little confusing and overwhelming.
0: Yeah, definitely. And honestly, the the VCs that back a lot of those companies, they benefit from the lack of transparency there. They like their golden handcuffs and the fact that everyone's tied up in the enterprise until there's some kind of liquidity event. So uh, I think educating people is a big part of this uh, and also kind of just changing the the, um, interaction between VCs and their uh, portfolio companies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with end round, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about um, you know some of your you know kind of most interesting uh, fundraising experiences thus far? Um, I know that you guys you know just went through a raise um, and have worked with a few other groups.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one would be uh, in the cannabis space would be a guy by the name of Bob Pease who used to work at a company called Franklin Bioscience in Pennsylvania. Uh, down, yeah. He has a, a new enterprise called Sunrise, um, and he just completed in the last month or two his raise. Um, I, I, I don't, uh, don't want to give too much away, but uh, to be honest, we can't really take much credit for, for that fundraise because he already had success previously and, and had a great network to reach out to. Um, so that's one. And then another would be we're starting to work with some accelerators. Um, one down in the Miami area is called Rocker Labs. And they have six of their portfolio companies that they'd like to fundraise for uh so we're spinning up sites for all of them and basically improving fundraising automation is what we call it signing documents getting uh, accredited investor investor questionnaires filled out all of that kind of legwork that's involved in raising money um so we're really excited about that as well
1: awesome and um with nth round uh, do you guys also work with a lot of canadian groups
0: we have worked with some, um, I, I will say, I think the fact that the public markets have, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, just not been so kind to, to cannabis companies. And that I think has created a little bit of a headwind for us. Um, I mean, I, I think the market is still strong and, and will um, continue to be successful, but for whatever reason, I think that has left a bad taste in some people's mouths. Um, but I will say, I, I think our platform could be argued as a is a better alternative to going public or at least having that goal as the as the end state. Um, you know if you can be a, an evergreen company, do right by your shareholders and kind of uh, instill patient uh, patience in them in terms of being long- term investors in the company, uh, you may not really need to consider going public at some point in the future
2: so uh, Graham. Um... I used to work a lot in the securities and exchange commission sort of rules and regulations publishing area. So this is a really intriguing business that you've created. And one thing that, that that I wonder in terms of sort of regulations is what do you guys have to abide by? I mean, obviously, and you've touched on it, there are accredited investors, there's also investor communication rules. So you know, what do you have to comply with and, and how do you manage that process?
0: Well, almost all of the raises that we, uh, help with our Reg D, um, you know, filings. So you're absolutely right that there are rules around accredited investor um, there. I mean, there are actually statutes that say you can bring in to up to 35 non-accredited. Um, and that's mm. that not a lot of people recognize is, is available to them. Um, and then in terms of, re- of reporting, we're absolutely trying to make that as easy as possible for companies. Um, you know, we encourage any company on our platform to at least communicate on a quarterly basis. Um, Others like to do it on a monthly basis, which is even better. Uh, But one other thing that we're pushing is, uh, you know, if you can start to engage with shareholders with investors, using video, uh, it's actually much faster for the founder to create those kind of communications. I mean, yes, you want to report your financials. But creating a five to 10 page document every quarter is actually more time intensive than creating a five minute video and just kind of filling in your investors on what's the latest going on. So I think there are opportunities there to, to ease that communication.
2: Interesting. Now, what about things like uh, you know, valuing these options? I remember trying to understand these fiendishly complex Black-Scholes formulas to value options and whatnot. And it always seemed to be a bit of a dark art. Is that anything that you guys get close to or do you help advise your clients on?
0: we honestly, we, we stay out of the business of valuing options. Uh, there are plenty of firms out there that do company valuations, and uh, a lot of companies look to foreign and A valuations to um, put a price on their options. Um, but there are other companies that just stipulate a price, and, um, you know, that's that's at their discretion, really. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we try to leave it mostly up to the company. We, we don't want to get in, into any hot water, you know, trying to Put a value on our customers,
2: right? Right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because what it led me to think about is there's a company that I was aware of called Computer Share, and uh, they bought up a lot of the companies that were in this space for public companies, you know, many years ago. Are, are you sort of like a Computer Share for private companies, really handling, you know, all those types of functions aside from the valuing of the options?
0: Yeah, I'd say we are. We are pretty comparable to them. Um, I will say we're not a I'm, I'm not positive whether Computer Share does this, but we're not a broker-dealer, so we, we're never in the business of trying to market someone's equity and sell it on the open market. Um, Got it. We respect mm-hmm. the fact that these are private companies, and it's completely up to them who their investors, who their shareholders are. Um, so we leave a lot of that up to the companies, um, and you know that, that goes back to what I was saying about options. You know, we, we're providing a platform for these companies, but uh, not trying to overstep our bounds there.
2: Right. And some of your brand message really seems to be a lot about um, founder control and, you know, leaving the founders with as much control is probably a good thing. But that leads me to the next question of, you know, walk us through how do you guys make money? You know, what kind of models are are, are you using uh, to earn compensation?
0: So we have a SaaS model, pretty standard. Uh, We charge an annual fee and there are different tiers of that. we we tend to base that off of number of shareholders, um, which, to be honest with you, is not a great metric. Especially, I think, when you look at the cannabis space, where you may you may raise money from 50 individuals and they're uh, relatively small check sizes each one. Um, so it's difficult. We're really trying to evaluate or trying to um, align the value delivered with what we're charging. Um, but just to give you an idea, for companies with with over Hundred shareholders per se. For uh, for example, uh, you know, that would that would bump you up to the next price tier because the more the more investors, the more shareholders that you're having to manage. Uh, we think uh, the more value is there.
2: Yeah, that that certainly makes uh, a lot of sense. And you know, I, I know Amanda touched a little bit about this before, but have you seen any peculiarities about doing this in the cannabis uh, space? Because from what I've seen and you know, just sort of looking from the outside, a lot of the raises seem to be around ancillary companies. And uh, you know, I'm sort of curious what, what you've been seeing from where you sit.
0: Well, I definitely think one thing that is attractive about the cannabis space is that um, there's really, I don't know if attractive is the right word, but it's really an underserved market in terms of um, banking and capitalization. Um, so a lot of these institutional players just won't touch cannabis. And I mean, that, that's a problem in and of itself, but it, uh, that means that you have to turn to more individuals, like I was saying, and, and look for other sources of capital. Mm-hmm. And I think that lends itself to a platform like ours, where you can kind of take control of, of take ownership over the relationship with your investors, um, you know, commit to being transparent with them upfront and, you know uh align them with the long-term goals of the company so that they're in it for the long run
2: oh, that makes a lot of sense now one thought that occurred to me as we were we're talking is um one of the most public fundraises i've seen in the space is uh high times where they've tried to raise money for a really long time in the public market any thoughts on that and you know how uh you guys probably could have helped them
0: Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about their raise. Uh, I think it's, it's difficult to be a player in the public markets when you're a cannabis company. Um, you end up a lot of people don't realize that there are really high costs involved with being public. Um, we, we helped one company that was actually, um, going private and they were spending, I think, $600,000 a year just to be public. Uh, and when you look at that in, you know, in relation to high times, I think you have to say to yourself, is that really worth the, all the benefits that come along with, with being public? Because, I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, there are definitely benefits to being public, but is it worth that $600,000 every year?
2: It's a it's a great point. I at one point in my career, like you, I worked for a small public company, I had some options, and we definitely should probably not have been a public company because you're right, you have all these auditing fees that you're paying to get accredited financials, you have directors and officers insurance, um, you've got to hold board meetings and you have to pay listing fees and you're right, it gets really expensive. And so uh, some people sort of like the uh, impression they have, like, well, we're a publicly traded company, but it certainly does come with a heck of a lot of headache. So I I think if you can keep great companies operating on your platform, that's probably a, a much better place to be
0: yeah absolutely
1: So tell us Graham um, you know how does a company like Nthround utilize the cannabis media platform? I know John Polhouse from your team is the primary user, but um, for you guys, you know how how have you utilized uh, our platform?
0: Well, we really see it as a as a source of truth to be honest um, you know looking at licenses that have been Granted, is, is a, you know, conveniently a, a great way to find new businesses that are coming out and, and just hitting the market. Um, so definitely we use it as a database um, just to kind of understand the landscape out there. Um, and then also to get, um, we rely a lot on word of mouth, but also just on, um, you know, campaigns to kind of reach out to people and uh, get a sense as to whether our platform is a fit for them. Um, you know, we, we use that, like I said, as a, as a source of truth so that we can get in contact with all of these companies and just see if there's, if there's a fit.
1: I love that answer. Uh, we uh, definitely like to see ourselves as that as well. So, um, you know, glad that you guys are, are seeing some benefit from there. Um, now, looking towards where the the end of the year, you know, we're in Q four right now. Um, any big exciting launches, plans, updates for the end of the year, or maybe twenty twenty one?
0: Well, we're definitely doing a lot around tax reporting. Um, the tax season is a, is a huge pain for a lot of companies. And you know if you have to send K-1s or some, you know if you have to send com- some kind of document to all of your investors, why not make that really easy? Instead of sending PDFs with password encryption on there, why not upload them to your investor portal and tell everyone, here's your full history of, of documents spanning back five years? So we're trying to make that process really easy um and then the other thing i think we're we're leaning into this idea of um slightly more institutional players like accelerators or incubators that they would like to onboard the platform for their portfolio companies and, and help them to fundraise so oh,
1: that's we're exciting.
0: excited about that and we're we're um, continuing to build out features there
1: very cool very cool that's uh that actually seems like it would be you know a perfect match um you know for those accelerator groups uh have you guys gotten a lot of uh traction there
0: we have we've gotten some early traction um you know it's difficult with with any new product initiative you want to uh you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself you want customers there that are paying and and getting value out of it so you can get feedback from them um but you know, uh, it's it's a, just a tough balancing act because you don't want to build too much up front without having the the validation there. Um, so we're but we're confident we're feeling confident at this point that we have enough customers in that space. So that's why we're we're making the investment.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Graham. Uh, We look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you sometime in 2021 once COVID is over. And uh, yeah, hope to see you around.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank
1: you. All right, Ed, let's take a look ahead and see what updates we've got from the Data Vault.
2: So We're digging into the point of sale data. So for most of the summer, we've been calling into dispensaries and retailers across the country, trying to find out what kind of point of sale they're using. So far, it looks like there's at least a dozen or so new vendors that uh, have appeared on the list since last year. Um, A bunch of them appear to be what we call one state wonders, uh, mostly in Oklahoma, because that's where most of the dispensaries have (laughs) uh, appeared, as you well know. What's been interesting in some of the early conclusions uh, I've seen are a couple companies are offering a free point of sale system. And uh, it looks like it's all paid for through upgrades. So if you want to delete something, you have to pay for that or whatnot. So I thought that was kind of interesting and odd. And a then free point
1: of sale? Can you yeah, do the, that? The,
2: the, why not? So, but, <laughs> you know, if you don't get the upgrades, you know, you're probably going to have a really hard time. And then. I also have found a, a few what I'll call canna-curious point of-sale systems where they already operate and exist in other industries like pharmacy and retail and now they're you know coming into the cannabis space so um, so they don't have a a big install base, but they're testing out the water. So we'll see how, uh, how that progresses. And uh, that's really what I'll be working on really, you know, through the end of the month until you and I uh, present this uh, on another podcast uh, for NCIA members.
1: That's right. Coming up on the 28th, we'll be uh, joining the NCIA team for one of their uh, webinars uh, for members. Uh, So if you are a member of NCIA, don't forget to RSVP. Um, We'll share the link with this posting as well so that you guys can register uh, to get to know Ed and I a little bit better and review some of the point of sales data. Thank you, Ed, for that update. Um, Everyone, this is the CannaCurio podcast powered by Cannabis Media. We are your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more updates from the Data Vault.
0: Thanks for listening to the CannaCurio podcast by Cannabis Media. Stay up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast And get alerts on the latest licensing activity in the United States and Canada, as well as exclusive industry insights by signing up for the Cannabis Media Licensing Newsletter at Cannabis.media slash newsletter.